Chapter 17 4,000 Leagues Under the Pacific The next morning, the 18th of November, I had quite recovered from my fatigues of the day before, and I went up on the platform just as the second lieutenant was uttering his daily phrase. I was admiring the magnificent aspect of the ocean when Captain Nemo appeared. He did not seem to be aware of my presence, and began a series of astronomical observations. Then, when he had finished, he went and leant on the cage of the watchlight and gazed abstractedly at the ocean. In the meantime, a number of the sailors of the Nautilus, all strong and healthy men, had come up onto the platform. They came to draw up the nets that had been laid all night. These sailors were evidently of different nations, although the European type was visible in all of them. I recognised some unmistakable Irishmen, Frenchmen, some Sclaves, and a Greek or a Candiote. They were civil, and only used that odd language among themselves, the origin of which I could not guess. Neither could I question them. The nets were hauled in. They were a large kind of chalut, exactly like that on the Normandy coasts, great pockets that the waves and a chain fixed in the smaller meshes kept open. These pockets, drawn by iron poles, swept through the water and gathered in everything in its way. That day they brought up curious specimens from those productive coasts, fishing frogs that, from their comical movements, have acquired the name of buffoons, black commerceons, furnished with antennae, triggerfish encircled with red bands, orthrogorisci with very subtle venom, some olive-coloured lampreys, macrohinchai, covered with silvery scales, trichiuri, the electric power of which is equal to that of the gymnotus and crampfish, scalinotopteri, with transverse brown bands, greenish cod, several varieties of gobies, etc. Also some larger fish, a caranx with a prominent head a yard long, several fine bonitos, streaked with blue and silver, and three splendid tunnies, which in spite of the swiftness of their motion had not escaped the net. I reckoned that the hall had brought in more than 900 weight of fish. It was a fine hall, but not to be wondered at. Indeed, the nets are let down for several hours and enclose in their meshes an infinite variety. We had no lack of excellent food, and the rapidity of the Nautilus and the attraction of the electric light could always renew our supply. These several productions of the sea were immediately lowered through the panel to the steward's room, some to be eaten fresh and others pickled. The fishing ended, the provision of air renewed, I thought that the Nautilus was about to continue its submarine excursion, and was preparing to return to my room when, without further preamble, the captain turned to me, saying, "'Professor, is not this ocean gifted with real life? It has its tempers and its gentle moods. Yesterday it slept as we did, and now it has woken after a quiet night.' "'Look,' he continued, "'it wakes under the caresses of the sun. It is going to renew its diurnal existence.' It is an interesting study to watch the play of its organisation. It has a pulse, arteries, spasms, and I agree with the learned Mori, who discovered it in a circulation as real as the circulation of blood in animals. Yes, the ocean has indeed circulation, and to promote it, the Creator has caused things to multiply in it, caloric, salt, and animalculi. When Captain Nemo spoke thus, he seemed altogether changed and aroused an extraordinary emotion in me. Also, he added, true existence is there, and I can imagine the foundations of nautical towns, clusters of submarine houses which, like the Nautilus, would ascend every morning to breathe at the surface of the water, free towns, independent cities. Yet who knows whether some despot... Captain Nemo finished his sentence with a violent gesture. 
Then, addressing me, as if to chase away some sorrowful thought, "'Monsieur Aranax,' he said, "'do you know the depth of the ocean?' "'I only know, Captain, what the principal soundings have taught us. "'Could you tell them, so that I can suit them to my purpose?' "'There are some,' I replied, "'that I remember. "'If I am not mistaken, a depth of 8,000 yards has been found in the North Atlantic, "'and 2,500 yards in the Mediterranean. "'The most remarkable soundings have been made in the South Atlantic, "'near the 35th parallel, and they gave 12,000 yards, 14,000 yards, and 15,000 yards.' To sum up all, it is reckoned that if the bottom of the sea were levelled, its mean depth would be about one and three-quarter leagues. Well, Professor, replied the captain, we shall show you better than that, I hope. As to the mean depth of this part of the Pacific, I tell you it is only four thousand yards. Having said this, Captain Nemo went towards the panel and disappeared down the ladder. I immediately followed him and went into the large drawing-room. The screw was put in motion, and the log gave twenty miles an hour. During the days and weeks that passed, Captain Nemo was very sparing in his visits. I seldom saw him. The lieutenant pricked the ship's course regularly on the chart, so I could always tell exactly the route of the Nautilus. Nearly every day, for some time, the panels of the drawing-room were opened, and we never tired of penetrating the mysteries of the submarine world. The general direction of the Nautilus was southeast, and it kept between a 100 and 150 yards of depth. One day, however, I do not know why, being drawn diagonally by means of the inclined planes, it touched the bed of the sea. The thermometer indicated a temperature of 4.25 centigrade, a temperature that at this depth seemed common to all latitudes. At three o'clock in the morning of the 26th of November, the Nautilus crossed the Tropic of Cancer at 172 degrees longitude. On the 27th instant, it sighted the Sandwich Islands, where Cook died, February 14th, 1779. We had then gone 4,860 leagues from our starting point. In the morning, when I went on the platform, I saw two miles to windward Hawaii, the largest of the seven islands that formed the group. I saw clearly the cultivated ranges and the several mountain chains that run parallel with the side, and the volcanoes that overtop Mauna Rhea, which rises 5,000 yards above the level of the sea. Besides other things the nets brought up were several flabberi and graceful polypi that are peculiar to that part of the ocean. The direction of the Nautilus was still to the southeast. It crossed the equator December 1st in 142 degrees longitude, and on the 4th of the same month, after crossing rapidly and without anything particular occurring, we sighted the Marquesas group. I saw, three miles off, at 8 degrees 57 minutes latitude south, and 139 degrees 32 minutes west longitude, Martin's Peak in Nukahiva, the largest of that group which belongs to France. I only saw the wooded mountains against the horizon because Captain Nemo did not wish to bring the ship to the wind. There the nets brought up beautiful specimens of fish, coraphines, with azure fins and tails like gold, the flesh of which is unrivalled, hollow gymnoses, nearly destitute of scales, but of exquisite flavour, ostorhinks with bony jaws, and yellow-tinged thassards as good as bonitos, all fish that would be of use to us. After leaving these charming islands protected by the French flag, from the 4th to the 11th of December, the Nautilus sailed over about 2,000 miles. This navigation was remarkable for the meeting with an immense shoal of calmars, near neighbours to the Cuttle. The French fishermen call them hornets. They belong to the cephalopod class and to the dibranchial family that comprehends the Cuttles and the Argonauts. These animals were particularly studied by students of antiquity, and they furnished numerous metaphors to the popular orators, 
as well as excellent dishes for the tables of the rich citizens, if one can believe Athenaeus, a Greek doctor who lived before Galen. It was during the night of the 9th or 10th of December that the Nautilus came across this shoal of mollusks that are particularly nocturnal. One could count them by millions. They emigrate from the temperate to the warmer zones, following the track of herrings and sardines. We watched them through the thick crystal panes, swimming down the wind with great rapidity, moving by means of their locomotive tube, pursuing fish and mollusks, eating the little ones, eaten by the big ones, and tossing about in indescribable confusion the ten arms that nature has placed on their heads like a crest of pneumatic serpents. The Nautilus, in spite of its speed, sailed for several hours in the midst of these animals, and its nets brought in an enormous quantity, among which I recognised the nine species that Daubigny classified for the Pacific. One saw, while crossing, that the sea displays the most wonderful sights. They were in endless variety. The scene changed continually, and we were called upon not only to contemplate the works of the Creator in the midst of the liquid element, but to penetrate the awful mysteries of the ocean. During the daytime of the 11th of December, I was busy reading in the large drawing-room. Ned Land and Conseil watched the luminous water through the half-open panels. The Nautilus was immovable. While its reservoirs were filled, it kept at a depth of a thousand yards, a region rarely visited in the ocean, and in which large fish were seldom seen. I was then reading a charming book by Jean Masset, The Slaves of the Stomach, and I was learning some valuable lessons from it, when Conseil interrupted me. "'Will Master come here in a moment?' he asked in a curious voice. "'What is the matter, Conseil? I, I want Master to look.' I rose, went, and leaned on my elbows before the panes and watched. In a full electric light, an enormous black mass, quite immovable, was suspended in the midst of the waters. I watched it attentively, seeking to find out the nature of this gigantic cetacean, but a sudden thought crossed my mind. "'A vessel!' I said half aloud. "'Yes,' replied the Canadian, "'a disabled ship that has sunk perpendicularly.' Ned Land was right. We were close to a vessel of which the tattered shrouds still hung from their chains. The keel seemed to be in good order, and it had been wrecked at most some few hours. Three stumps of masts, broken off about two feet above the bridge, showed that the vessel had had to sacrifice its masts. But lying on its side it had filled, and it was heeling over to port. This skeleton of what it had once been was a sad spectacle as it lay lost under the waves, but sadder still was the sight of the bridge, where some corpses bound with ropes were still lying. I counted five, four men, one of whom was standing at the helm, and a woman standing by the poop, holding an infant in her arms. She was quite young. I could distinguish her features which the water had not decomposed by the brilliant light from the Nautilus. In one despairing effort she had raised her infant above her head, poor little thing, whose arms encircled its mother's neck. The attitude of the four sailors was frightful, distorted as they were by their convulsive movements while making a last effort to free themselves from the cords that bound them to the vessel. The steersman alone, calm, with a grave, dear face, his grey hair glued to his forehead, and his hand clutching the wheel of the helm, seemed even then to be guiding the three broken masts through the depths of the ocean. What a scene! We were dumb, our hearts beat fast before the shipwreck, taken as it were from life and photographed in its last moments. And I saw already, coming towards it with hungry eyes, enormous sharks, attracted by the human flesh. However, the Nautilus, turning, went round the submerged vessel, and in one instant I read on the stern, The Florida, Sunderland.